Well, good morning. Good to see each of you this morning. Go ahead and turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. <coughs> Excuse me. As we get started this morning, I think what we'll do is I'm going to read a couple verses, several verses first, and then we'll uh, start reading and we'll read chapter 5 together. Let you all read chapter 5. I'll let Pastor Brinker start in verse 1. But I'm going to read a couple other verses back in chapter 2 and then 4 first, all right, because uh, what we're getting into this morning is the second P. So those three P's of the book of Hebrews, what are they? The person, which speaks, of course, of Christ's superior person, and then his priesthood. We're getting into that this morning, uh, and what Chapters in the book of Hebrews basically cover the priesthood of Christ. Chapters 5 through 10 and then 10 through 13 because really in about verse 19 of chapter 10 is where it transitions into the third, the principal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so this morning as we uh, get into chapter 5, which, which introduces the, the main subject matter of his priesthood, all right, uh, you'll see as you read this chapter, you'll you'll see that subject. Okay, but I want to I want to read the three or four verses that we've seen already in Hebrews that that also started to breach, if you want to say that subject of his priesthood back in chapter two, verse seventeen. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things concerning, uh, pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of, his, of, of the people. Now, that's in the context of his humanity, all right? Now, of course, uh, and he, and he kind of just hints in there that uh, because of his humanity, he was able to be a merciful and faithful high priest. And then in chapter uh, 3, at the very beginning of it, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. All right, so there, uh, again, mentioned, then it goes into talking about his faithfulness, right? And then in chapter 4, the last several verses of chapter 4, uh, after that warning passage about, you know, beware that you don't miss the rest that's in Christ, all right? Don't miss salvation is the idea. Not that you might miss holding on to it, but you might miss salvation, and that comes, or that would happen because of what? What's that key idea there in chapter 3? Because of unbelief. The people in the Old Testament missed the rest of the promised land that God had offered them because of unbelief, all right? And he uses that example to liken it to uh, those of his day that were, you know, they were toying around with the idea of salvation. They were, uh, and they might even have been kind of, a, you know, assimilating into those that uh, had come to Christ, but they had not come to faith in Christ, and therefore they weren't there. And he's warning them of that. Beware lest you miss that, all right? It's a serious thing. It's a very serious thing, all right? And then as he gets back into the main uh, progression of the book of Hebrews in chapter 
4, verse 14, he says, Seeing then we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. And again, that, that, that fits right in with the idea of what he had just been talking about, all right? That beware, all right, so that we don't rest. We need to hold fast to that profession, all right? Don't, don't let go in the sense of don't turn from it, all right? Keep on. And then he says, uh, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. That's extremely important. Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, of course, that's pertaining in its context directly to salvation, but obviously there's a principle there for uh, really everything in our lives as Christians, all right? Uh, the help that we, you know, God offers help. He, he's provided help, but we have to come to Him for that. And that help is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then chapter 5, as we get into that, if you'll begin reading there, and just read through the chapter, if you would. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in, the th in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. And by reason hereof he sought, as for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. And no man taketh this honor unto him, himself, but he that is called of God as of Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made in high priest, but he said, but he that said unto them, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are called him. For in the time ye ought to be teachers, we have need that one teach you again, which is to be the first principle of the oracles of God. There become such as have need of milk, and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteous righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this portion, particularly this morning. Help us uh, uh, to learn from it and, uh, again, see these wonderful truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray that you draw us closer to yourself because of this. Help us to love you as we ought, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 5, again, begins this uh, longer part of the book of Hebrews, really really, probably the, what you would call the main uh, meat of the book of Hebrews, dealing with the, per, the priesthood of Christ. And really there's about five areas, four or five areas of his priesthood that are dealt with in detail. Uh, and you'll see how this relates back to the Old Testament system and so on here, but 
in chapter 5, as we, we just read here, we have really what I just call a synopsis. Again, these are alliterated here, but uh, which really, it's just giving an overview kind of of priesthood, what priesthood is, what it's about, and uh, we'll talk about that more in just a few moments. And then when you get in to uh, actually really the last part of chapter 5 and chapter 6 then are the third warning passage, all right? And then, that's why they're not listed here. And then uh, chapter 7 speaks of what I'm calling the source of Christ's priesthood, or you'll see that that is where the subject of Christ being a priest after the order of Melchizedek is dealt with in more detail. All right, in other words... The, the priests in the Old Testament, the priests in the Old Testament were priests after the order of Aaron, or you could say Levi, all right? Uh, the Levitical priesthood. In fact, that's the term that's used in chapter 7 to compare them with Christ, but they're priests after the order of Aaron. Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, all right? And again, we'll get into the details of that in chapter 7. Chapter 8 deals with, uh, again, we'll call it the script for sake of alliteration, but really the covenant, all right? There was a covenant that God gave Israel, uh, several covenants, of course, but there's covenant involved in God giving the law, and uh, there were, you know, obviously things that were laid out there in that, that they were to do and God would do and so on. And uh, in chapter 8, we see that Christ is a priest after or with a new covenant, all right? So there's a difference there, a comparison. In chapter 9, we see that uh, Aaron and the Old Testament priesthood served in a tabernacle. Now, it was a tabernacle that was, it was right, all right? It was, it was given by God to Moses and, and all of that, so there was nothing wrong with it in the sense of, you know, that they, you know, they had done something wrong, but... They were doing what God said, but it was an earthly tabernacle. The tabernacle that Christ's priesthood is exercised in is, as Hebrews 9 says, the true tabernacle, which is in heaven, all right? Obviously superior to the old tabernacle, all right? And then uh, the, ultimately then getting to the sacrifice that the high priest is dealing with all right, there were sacrifices. We're going to mention some of them this morning here, but in the Old Testament, but they were all, they, they all fell short. They were, they were not able to do uh, what was needed. They were just really pictures, temporary things, but they were pictures, foreshadows of what would ultimately uh, be uh, the sacrifice, and, and really I should say it this way, the sacrifice that God has always seen and accepted, all right? Because as First Peter says, Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. Now, there was a time in human history, obviously, when that happened, but in God's view of things, uh, if I can picture it that way, God always looked at Christ as the one who satisfies and fulfills, all right, his sacrifice. But chapter 10 then deals with that sacrifice, and it, it very specifically talks about how all the Old Testament sacrifices were just, they were types, shadows, foreshadows, pictures of what Christ's sacrifice was and would do. And so 
that's, that's the, uh, what we'll see in these chapters. And now in chapter 5 here, again, chapter 4, these last several verses makes the transition. So uh, we begin this, uh, this look now at Christ's priesthood. And just, again, this is just really a chapter, because it's interesting, he gets into it, but he just kind of opens the, the subject up a little bit, and then he gets into another warning passage before he gets back to the subject in more detail. But uh, that's obviously the way that uh, the Lord worked here, and so that's the, what we're going to follow, all right? But we see a presentation or a, a summary and overview of Christ's priesthood. First of all, when you think about priests, all right, if you notice when you all read the, uh, the chapter there, the first four verses... Uh, don't really talk about Christ. They talk about the Old Testament uh, economy of priests. All right. In fact, it's interesting. Um, there was a verse I was going to point out, and now I can't remember which one it was or find it. But you'll notice as you look at this that the priests that he's referring to, these Old Testament, we call them Old Testament. I mean, at that point, the writing of Hebrews, they were still doing what they were doing. All right, that didn't stop until the Romans destroyed the temple in A.D. 70. Since then, they have not been able to do that. And it's interesting, some of the uh, uh, excuses, if I could say it that way, that the modern rabbis uh, make or give for how they can have any kind of a Day of Atonement. And so they still practice the Day of Atonement, but they don't make a sacrifice. Uh, and they don't have blood to offer like that. But it's interesting the different ways in which they talk around it and, and so on. Uh, but anyway, they, they very much want to get back to that, all right? And, you know, uh, the Orthodox, the practicing Jews in Israel are, are very much chomping at the bits to get a third temple built and to get back into that. And... Uh, I've, uh, I mean, you hear all kinds of things, obviously, through different things, but I had heard one time that the one thing that they needed that they didn't have was the red heifer, because if you remember back in the book of Exodus, all right, a red heifer was necessary to, to uh, start, if you want to say, the anointing process so that Aaron could be anointed, his sons could be anointed, the tabernacle, all the different furnishings and everything of the tabernacle could be anointed so that they could be consecrated for use. And I've recently read that there's a ranch in Texas that is uh, growing red heifers for them. So, uh, you know, anyway, bottom line is they're, they're ready to get that going. They just don't have a temple to do it in. And so, uh, obviously, all of that's going to fall into place, you know, uh, when the Antichrist comes on the scene and, and all of that, and, and there's going to be a temple built, but that's not going to be a temple built by God. There is coming another temple that God's going to build in the millennial time, and uh, it's, he's, he's going to build that temple, and his glory is going to fill it. His glory is not going to be in that, what we would say, that third earthly temple that it's uh, going to be during the tribulation time. But anyway... All right, uh, the criteria, the qualifications of a high priest. As this is written here in these first four verses, again, it, this is another reason why we, we certainly believe that Hebrews was written before the destruction of the temple because all this is written as if it's ongoing uh, at the time. All right, for every, high, for every high priest taken among men is ordained of for men. All right, so I, again, just notice the, the, the idea. This is what's happening now. 
all right? It's not now in 2023, but in that first century, all right? Is ordained for men and things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins and so on, all right? So you have, in, in the first four verses, you have basic criteria, qualifications of a priest, a high priest, all right? But a priest. And uh, so notice, I have them here, I think. Notice the various things that are stated in these verses. First of all, the basic duty or concept, maybe I should word it that way, of what a priest is, he is someone that represents man before God, right? He goes to God to, you know, somehow or another make intercession, right? Uh, Even in the sense of prayer, of course, but even... When you think of sacrifices and so on, that's what they were. They were a way to make intercession for man to God, all right? So he must represent man before God. That's kind of the whole basic idea of what a priest is, all right? Then you see also that he must be able to sympathize with those whom he represents. In other words, he has to have a connection with the people that he's representing. He he was part of them. He, you know, he... he was like them. He had the feelings of their infirmities, so to speak. All right? Uh, and so you see that in, in uh, verse 2. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. All right? It's talking about just general quali- criteria of priests in the Old Testament. All right? So then thirdly in verse 3, He must offer sacrifices for sins. And, of course, this was both for his and for the people's sins. All right? And there were numerous, obviously, sacrifices that were made. I just had um, uh, finished, actually started, I think, this last week in the Book of Numbers, but had just recently recently read... Uh, the book of Leviticus, and the book of Leviticus is all about sacrifices and so on. In fact, the first five chapters introduce the five different types of sacrifices that, uh, that were to be done and performed, uh, and they each had specific reasons and, and you know, why these were done and so on. But in chapter one, there was uh, the burnt offering. Chapter two, the, it's called meat offering. It's how, but the idea of meal, grain, Uh, And then the peace offering in chapter 3, sin offering in chapter 4, the trespass offering in chapter 5 of Leviticus. And as someone has noted, there's no sacrifice in the Old Testament, no offering that was specified by God that would cover what would be called presumptuous sins. Sins that people did on purpose, just an act of rebellion. It's interesting, there was no... um, uh, allotment made for that, provision made for that in the law. But, obviously, Christ's sacrifice does cover, covers all sins, all right? But, uh, and I have some verses here, but I think for time's sake, we'll just skip over those now that talk about those presumptuous sins. And, in fact, let me just maybe read one here, all right? This is from Numbers 15, verse 30. But the soul that doeth aught presumptuously, whether he be born in the land or a stranger, the same reproacheth the Lord, and that soul shall be cut off from among his people. In other words, there was nothing, no, no cure for him, so to speak, or nothing that could be done for him. All right? Um, anyway, 
But getting back to the, uh, the criteria, the qualifications of the, the priest there in the first four verses of chapter 10, you see also that he must be called. And this is very important, all right? Uh, uh, verse 4, he must be called to that office by God, all right? This, it's interesting when you think about this, all right? Because not just anybody could have been a priest. God specified uh, who was to be the priest and only they could be the priest. You remember when, uh, after Solomon's day, when Solomon's son Rehoboam was the king, and then the kingdom split? Jeroboam became the king of the northern tribes, and uh, Rehoboam was still the king of, the, of Judah and Benjamin. Uh, but what did Jeroboam do? Remember that? He set up a new system of worship because he didn't want the people to be going to Jerusalem and participating in worship because he said, well, their hearts are going to be drawn back there and then they're going to forsake me and, you know, I'm going to be out on my own and all this kind of thing and then I'm going to be in trouble, that kind of an idea. So to save his own neck, thinking anyway, he institutes a whole new religion, right? He makes two golden calves, puts one in kind of what you would call the southern part of those northern tribes and then one up in the northern section, I guess, for... Um, Convenience, you know, for people to travel. Uh, and then it says he, insta he made, I'm trying to think of how it's worded exactly, but he made priests of all sorts of people. I mean, I don't know what, how they were chosen or whatever, you know, whether he just offered them money and whoever volunteered or, you know, I mean, he just told, said, you're going to be a priest, whatever. But the point is, obviously, they were never qualified in God's sight to be priests. Now, when you think about some of the priests that we know of that were qualified by these measures, all right, they were in the right lineage, and so in that sense, they were, they were called by, by God. But, you know, you think of some of the priests that we know of, I mean, Eli's sons, I mean, they weren't qualified spiritually, all right, but at the same time, they were still legitimately the priests. And therefore, the people that did what they did following God's word and in faith, God still respected what they were doing, even though the priests were polluted, all right? But the point being is there were qualifications that had to be met. And that's an interesting one. It, notice the order in which these are in. And now in verses 5 through uh, 10, here you see now he presents how Christ meets those qualifications. But he starts in the opposite order. He, he, he goes back up the list instead of down the list in the same order. So uh, in, in verse 5, notice uh, what he says in verse 4, No man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. And that's what he starts with. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made in high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee, as he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's interesting as well, I, I, and I don't want to digress here much. I'm just going to mention this because I think it's another a, a good example of the same principle. All right, But the matter of baptism. I believe that the, the New Testament teaches that there's a proper authority for baptism. And if that authority is not in place, baptism... You know, somebody getting wet or whatever, that's, it's not valid scripturally. 
And it's interesting how when Jesus came on the scene, he submitted to John the Baptist's baptism. Why? Because God sent John for specific reasons, and one of those was to baptize, and I believe very specifically to baptize Jesus, to baptize Christ. All right? But you see, you see an authority. I mean, Jesus could have come and said, you know what, I have all authority. I can just do what I want, do this. And in a way, maybe that would be true in the sense that he had authority, but it demonstrates that he always submits to the will of the Father, and he submitted to the authority that God had already put into place. And same thing's true here, right? He didn't come on the scene saying, ah, I'm the, I'm the high... You know, he came and he was called by God to be a priest. Now think about this. When was he called by God to be a priest? This could be a tricky question, okay? But think about this for a second. When was he? All right, there's two different scriptures that are referred to in verses 5 and 6. One is in Psalm 2. The other is in Psalm 110, all right? And the, and the writer of Hebrews here, re, uh, he appeals to both of these psalms as giving authority to Jesus being called by God to be a high priest. All right, so these are from the Old Testament. So these are way before Jesus' earthly ministry. But think about this as well, all right? Also, and, and we'll see this again down toward the end here, he's called a priest after the order of Melchizedek. When was Melchizedek? I mean, what do we know about Melchizedek? I don't, I don't want to get too much into this. We're going to see it in chapter 7 in more detail. But Melchizedek predates Aaron. So again, and that's what he's ultimately going to argue here. He doesn't go into it much here in chapter 5, but in chapter 7 you're going to see it. That Christ uh, anointing his, his calling to be a priest, being after the order of Melchizedek, it predates Aaron's becoming a priest. So, I mean, again, his, his being called of God was done way before God called Aaron to be a priest. All right? And so, if there's anybody you would say is a usurper, it's Aaron. Although he's not, because God put that in place. Okay? But, again, the writer of Hebrews is appealing to this fact. I mean, his priesthood is superior. And that's what chapters 5 through 10 are all about. The superior priesthood of Christ. All right? But he was called by God. He, he, the writer of Hebrews clearly says that. He was called of God to be a priest. Okay? And he's called after the order of Melchizedek, of course. All right? But then... You'll see also, what does a priest do? Well, he offered up. Christ offered up for himself and for the people. Now, his offering up might be a little different, all right, as we look at it, but the priest, had, what did the priest in the Old Testament offer up to God? All right, various sacrifices and stuff, but there is something else. In fact, if you, if you read the details of like the Day of Atonement and so on, the priest offered up prayers as well. He's, he's the one. I mean, doesn't mean any of the other Israelites couldn't pray, okay? But the priest had to officially offer up prayers to God. That was part of the whole thing with the altar of incense inside the tabernacle. All right, that represents prayer. 
all right? Uh, and as he went, he had to have that incense and take incense into the, into the Holy of Holies because, I mean, there's a couple reasons for that. Again, that, that represents prayer in the Bible, incense. In the book of Revelation, you see that as well, that there's talks about incense rising up, and there it says, which are the prayers of the saints, all right? But as he went into that veil, part of the reason the cloud of incense had to be in there was so that he wasn't directly looking at the presence of God. It was, it was sort of a protection between him and, and the, uh, the mercy seat and so on there. But did Christ offer up something for himself? The interesting thing here is he had no sin to make an offering for, right? But as the verses here say, in fact, let's look at them a little closer here. Uh, verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, right? Verse 6, he just said, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh. Now, this is, it's interesting because who, who, the first word in verse 7, who, it's a pronoun, so it's, it's standing for a noun, right? It's standing for something. Who, who is it referring to? All right? And grammatically, it could be referring to Melchizedek, all right? And theologically, by the way, we'll talk more about this later, it could be referring to him as well, but it is definitely referring to Christ, all right? I believe they're one and the same. But anyway, who in the days of his flesh, Christ, all right, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared... All right, so just stop here for a second. What did Christ offer up? He offered up prayers. He offered up prayers for people. We can see examples of that in the Gospels, all right? But he offered up prayers for himself as well. And probably verse 7 there is directly referring to what took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. I mean, I, that is a... That is a I don't even know what, how to rightly talk about that. I mean, it, it, that is a, a, an area there that is really, again, I don't even know what, right, the word, what word to use to describe that, but that, that's, that's what you would say. That's some serious and, and tender, holy ground there to talk about what Christ was praying about and so on. I, I mean... I don't believe he was praying to get out of what God had called him to do, okay? Because his whole mission and coming was, I mean, that, he was headed there, and he knew it, and that's what was going on. I believe somehow or another the whole thing is he's, he's crying to God and, and all that's taking place. I mean, maybe, you know, if there was a way to avoid the sin, you know, on him, I, I mean, there, there, there's, that, that's a, it's a, that is a, a, dark subject in the sense of, I mean, that, that's, that's, again, I don't even know how to, how, what word I want to use to describe it, but it's just, I mean, it's, it's something that's hard to think about and reason out, all right, because obviously he knew the whole purpose of what he's doing, and I, again, I don't think he's just trying to get out of it, that's, that's not the point, but somehow or another, he obviously was dreading it. I mean, he being God the Son and knowing what was coming, all right? I mean, taking on sin, 
experiencing the wrath of God, sure, but separation from God, the Father, I mean, that, that's, that's deep stuff right there. And he's crying out to God and, and crying with tears. I mean, he was, this was serious struggle going on with him, all right? But he was crying to him that was able to save him from death and was heard. Did God not answer his prayer? No, he was heard and God answered his prayer, all right? Uh, I mean, God answers every prayer. that The Father answers every prayer the Son prayed. But notice uh, that ties in then with, with the other verses here. But he made the point being that why we brought this up. He's offering up prayer, all right? And then we see that he offers himself up as a sacrifice for men, for others, all right? We know that, all right? But let's go on there in those verses. He says, uh, unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. The word feared here is the idea of he was in awe. I mean, he was in in awe and holy dread, you know. Um, and again, I think somehow or another this relates to all that was going on with him bearing the sin and, and that, that what was going to take place between father and son there uh, and so on. All right, and then it says, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And, and the sentence continues on through verse 9, um, actually down to verse 10, but, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Now, this is, these are some serious words and serious thing to consider here, all right? Let me just say uh, that these verses are in no way saying that Christ was not perfect in the, in the sense of sinless, and even in verse 9 where it says he learned obedience, that doesn't mean he was ever disobedient, okay? But the idea here is, all right, through what he endured, through what he did, he ex and the learned here is the idea of he experienced. He experienced obedience. He was, I mean, as God the Son, he had the perfect knowledge of, of all of that, but he actually went through it. And on the other side of it then, right, after, it was, after he endured it, it's like now he can say he felt it, he experienced it fully. He learned it in that sense. He learned it by experience. I mean, there are things that everybody can read about, but lots of things maybe you read about you've never done in your life and never will do maybe, you know? Uh, but there's a difference in reading about it, maybe being familiar with it in that sense, but actually going through it, actually doing it, can be a whole different story. All right? But the idea is Christ, as our high priest, and this is in the context of him being the high priest, right? Being our priest, all right? He offered up for himself and for the people. Uh, and he went through. He actually carried out and did what was necessary. That's the idea. All right? And then where it says, uh, and being made perfect in verse 9. All right? 
He became the author of eternal salvation. Again, the phrase being made perfect is not talking about his person as far as his sin, sinlessness, or anything like that. It's talking about, in fact, we can take a moment, there's no way, I, I printed out, what I did is, I got a list of all the verses in the New Testament that use this exact wording here, so you can see, because really that's the best, the Bible's the best commentary on itself, and see how the, this is used in other places, and it helps you understand what it means here, okay? Um, for instance, all right, in Luke 2, 43, and when the days and when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind at Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew it, knew not of it. You're familiar with the context there, all right? Uh, when Jesus was, stayed back and was left in the temple and so on. Anyway, it says when, the, when they had fulfilled the days. The word fulfilled there, same word as, as made perfect here in Hebrews uh, 5, 9, all right? Fulfilled, all right? Uh, again, I don't have time to go through all these verses, but um, in Luke 13, 32, and he, this is Jesus, said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Herod, Behold, I cast out devils and I do cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. Again, that doesn't mean he's going to become sinless. That's, that's, this idea of perfect here is not talking about sinlessness. It's talking about completing something, fulfilling something, doing something. Uh, and in, again, that's the idea, okay? I just, for time's sake, I'm going to have to leave it at that. So when you think about this in this sense, the idea is in verse 9, and being made perfect. So, and having completed everything, all right? That's the idea. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Now, let me ask you this. Has Christ... Has God the Son always been the Savior? This is a tricky question, I'll be honest, okay? And it's sort of a trick question, okay? Has He always been the Savior? Well, in a way, yes, because that's always been His appointment, but there was a point in time when He became that because He actually did fulfilled what was necessary to do it, to be it, Okay? So that's the idea. Same thing you could say in this sense, is Jesus the ruler of this world? Well, yes, but he has not, he has not carried that out yet and done that. He will one day when he returns to this earth and he sets up a kingdom here on this earth. He will rule and reign on this earth then. But he hasn't exercised that yet, okay? And I'm just trying to get you to see a picture. That's that's the idea here. So when he fulfilled this priestly work that was involved in salvation on these verses, that's when he became the author of eternal salvation. All right? So in, in a theory, maybe you could say it this way. It's the difference between theory and practice. All right? In theory, he's always been the author of our salvation. But after he completed the work of salvation... He became the author of our salvation in practice, in actuality. That's, that's the idea here. And I'm trying to emphasize this because these are some verses that some groups take and twist, okay, to say Christ was never, he wasn't always God and had to be, you know, I mean, different things, okay? But he's always been, but there was, you know, it is true that 
he fulfilled these as he came to this earth and carried out this mission and did different things. Okay, then he, he was that in practice then. All right, does, does that make sense? Uh, that kind of an idea, all right? So, and again, when you look at the, ver- the, 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 the wording that's used, you compare it how it's used in other places, that's obviously what it's talking about. He came and fulfilled this. He carried it out and completed it, and so now that's in place. That's true, okay, in all actuality. So, um, though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered being, and being made perfect. Again, it has nothing to do with him and his sinlessness. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about his job, all right, his role as the priest. He came and carried it out to completion. He became, and doing that, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that believe. It's interesting there that it's called eternal salvation, all right? And then verse 10, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, all right? And so again, referring back to Melchizedek, but notice a couple other statements here, and we got to hurry. Christ offered himself up, uh, offered up for himself and for the people. Prayers for himself and prayers and a sacrifice, not sacrifices, one sacrifice and a once for all time, one and done sacrifice. We'll see that later in Hebrews uh, for the people. And in all of that he did, he became a sympathetic high priest. Again, he was, he was in theory, he's always been the high priest. But he became a sympathetic in that he experienced humanity. Think about that. There's nothing that you experience. Now, that doesn't mean every single situation that every single person in the world faces, you know, Christ faced that exact scenario, but he's, he's faced the principle of it, all right? And because of that, he knows. When we take burdens and cares to him, he knows. I mean, you know, that's the idea. He's a sympathetic high priest, all right? And he represents believers before God. We'll see more about that later, but verse there, Hebrews 7, 25, all right? And then Christ was appointed by God to be the eternal high priest. Now, again, notice verse 10, and we'll have to close with this. Called of God, uh, well, verse 9, it says the author of eternal salvation. And then verse 10 called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The idea is, the way Hebrews presents it, and it's, it's built on more in chapter 7, but Melchizedek's priesthood has been in existence and continues. Aaron, I mean, Aaron was not a priest forever. Aaron died. His priesthood ended for him. His son had to pick it up. All right, and that that happened numerous times down through the centuries. All right, but Melchizedek's he's he's presented as, as you read Hebrews, Melchizedek is presented as eternal. He's here. He's the, I mean he's ever present in that sense. You know he didn't he, he was on the earth back in Abraham's day, and according to Hebrews he's in heaven now. But we'll, we'll see more about that, all right? But Christ, again, as it's gotten into his priesthood here, you see just kind of an overview, all right? There were qualifications, criteria that had to be met by the Old Testament priests, and the Lord Jesus meets those qualifications. In fact, you could say he goes beyond those qualifications. His priesthood is eternal. So... 
this is setting up for, again, what's, what's to come here in the next number of chapters. Let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for uh, just your word, your goodness. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that you'd help us to take salvation serious, as we ought, but also, Lord, to be thankful for it and appreciate it. And, Lord, just to want to love you and serve you as we ought. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.